Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Lauren Spear was a cute, young, outgoing college student attending Indiana University in the spring of 2011. One June night, she went out drinking with her friends. From there, facts are limited, stories don't quite add up, speculation has run wild, and a 20-year-old girl is missing, with no information as to her whereabouts or what might have happened to her on that fateful night. I'm Mike. I'm Ian. And I'm Dave. Stick around. Perhaps you may be able to help solve a mystery. This is Necronomapod. This beautiful college student vanished without a trace after a night of partying five years ago. Her parents have repeatedly appealed for resolution. Where are you, my sweet girl? I'm, I'm just missing you so desperately. The mystery of what happened to 20-year-old Lauren Spear has never been solved. The Indiana University student was seen on surveillance video the night of her disappearance in June 2011. She partied at this sports bar and met up with several male friends. But they have lawyered up and aren't talking about Lauren's fate. Why are they trying to be quiet? What are they hiding? He does not believe she was kidnapped. He says he was given information from a source that Lauren's college friends hold the key to the mystery. So, Ian, I need you to do Dave and I a favor. Okay. Can can you not pick subjects that are going to get us in so much trouble on the social medias like you did with fucking Billy Meyer? <laughs> yeah, that's the last episode I ever thought would uh, piss anybody off. People believe the Billy in Billy Meyer man. fuck boys were out in full force this past week not loving the things that uh, we had to say about their uh, their hero. What are you going to do? <laughs> I mean, look, the guy the traveled back the in facts. time. Yeah, the guy traveled back in time and took pictures of pterodactyls, Mike. Why don't be downplaying the I believe the veracity I believe. of those photos. <laughs> Somebody told us that we're wrong. It's not really a religion, okay? I whatever. Uh someone said the photos that we posted were altered. Um, and I think someone else said that, and I think Ian, you asked that person if they had the correct photos and he responded in a word, no. 
So there's that. And then um, he didn't say in a word no. He just said no. Um, clearly, he doesn't listen to the show. And then I think there was Dave. You you asked called somebody out for something, didn't you? I asked them if they were suggesting that he had actually gone back in time and taken a picture of a pterodactyl. Sure. That because that was the guy that said, "Why are you spreading disinformation on social media when anyone can just read his book and use their logical mind?" Absolutely. And yeah, <laughs> still waiting on a reply. <laughs> we all are. So, uh, yeah, who would have thought? Who would have thought that it was? Um, what would the the uh, gang stalking and Billy Meyer were going to draw the most heat? Meanwhile, like we got no heat for Scientology, minimal heat from flat earthers, just unreal, unexpected. Yeah, yeah, some crazy people for John Bonet. Some that person who emailed and said yeah. they wanted to go out to lunch with me or go out to eat and like talk about stuff. Like, nope, that's not happening. Well, they're just um, up. Yeah, come on, they're trying to John Bonet and chill. Yeah, there's some weird people for John Bonet. Yeah, but, we did get a lot on that one. But it actually pissed some people off with Billy Meyer. Yeah. I don't the John Bonet didn't cause a lot of like people getting angry at us, right? They just wanted to like dive into the facts and like break everything down. I feel like mm, maybe some there were some weird pissed. there were some weird people. There were some weird people on YouTube. YouTube's a cesspool. Um moving on, I think Ian, I was texting with you texting with you last night about this. Topics like today's that we're gonna get into are the, for me, the creepiest shit we cover, bar none, period, end of story. Uh, You know, we can talk about ghosts or cryptids or aliens or serial killers all day long. Some of them are sad stories, but overall, they don't really bother me. They don't affect me at all. I was reading these notes last night sitting on my couch at like, I don't know, 10 o'clock at night, maybe maybe 9 or 10 o'clock. And I heard like like a creak in my kitchen and I literally jumped in my couch. (laughs) Like... It startled me. It scared me because I was so creeped out by the notes of this story because it's the unknown that makes it so terrifying. And this is a little different for us. We've never done a single missing person case before. We had some feedback. We had that little uh, questionnaire we put out for for advertising purposes. And I decided to throw in there what people would like to hear different. And a lot of people said they wanted uh, more unsolved stuff, missing persons, unsolved murders. So... We'll take a crack at it. Well, and, you know, this is us tapping into our basic white girl podcast, right? Like doing these unsolved <laughs> true crime cases. That's yeah. what we're doing tonight. So, um, and, and, and I, mean, I think the only other time we, we did something similar to this was the missing 411, which people loved. And I think, Dave, isn't that like your one of your favorite episodes we've done? That is one of the creepiest. I found that show very, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's the like the unknown. You just don't know what happened to these people and that it's just terrifying to think about. Well, and who knows? I mean, maybe the right person listens to this, triggers a memory, and uh, maybe this thing gets solved one day. We can all hope. That would be great. So let's uh, let's dive into it, Ian. Let's get to the meat of this. In the early morning hours of June 3rd, 2011, 20-year-old Indiana University student Lauren Spear went missing, and she has never been seen again. She was five feet tall, That and that's this is according to her missing poster, that she was five feet tall weighed approximately 90 pounds and had blonde hair and blue eyes. There's also stuff I saw out there that she was 4'11". So either way, she's a very uh, tiny. Yeah, very, very petite girl. At the time, Lauren was majoring in fashion merchandising and was described as having a very outgoing and bubbly personality. Lauren was born in January 1991 to Charlene and Robert Spear. 
She grew up in Scarsdale, New York, which is an affluent town in lower Westchester County. Lauren graduated from Edgemont High School in 2009 and enrolled at Indiana University. She was active in the Jewish community at IU and had spent the previous spring before her disappearance planting trees in Israel on behalf of the Jewish National Fund. During high school, Lauren met her boyfriend, Jesse Wolf and her friend Jay Rosenbaum years earlier at Camp Tawanda, which was a summer camp in the mountain town of Honsdale, Pennsylvania. Lauren and Jesse both ended up going to IU and remained a couple until her disappearance. At that summer camp, she also met various other future IU students who later became her, her inner circle of friends when she enrolled there in 2009. So you think so she was going people. after her boyfriend then? Going to the same school as her boyfriend? Yeah, it sounded like they were just like, yeah, that, that high school couple and they decided to go to the same college. But it's like multiple, like like a whole group of them went to the same college, right? Right. Yeah. So it's like this, these are just, you know, people she grew up, not grew up with, but had a little bit of a history with. They weren't just random guys she associated with when she got to college necessarily. She had a little bit of a past with these people. In the late evening of June 2nd, 2011, Lauren, dressed in a white tank top, a white blouse, and black leggings, left her apartment building, Smallwood Plaza, for a night out with her friends. Her boyfriend, Jesse, decided to stay in that night to watch Game 2 of the NBA Finals, which was the Miami Heat versus the Dallas Mavericks. And at the time, that if you were a fan of the NBA and someone, especially Jesse's age, that would make sense to uh, to want to stay in and watch that game. Because that's when LeBron took uh, went down to Miami, so that was a huge, uh, huge NBA Finals. Yeah, Why true. you got to bring that up, man? I'm just saying. <laughs> no, it's a dick move by you. You didn't got to do that. Got to shit on Cleveland like that. Dave, was this the first year they won the championship? Do you know? Was that when the Heat won? You're you're probably the biggest yeah, basketball fan. Of the I don't really remember. Yeah. She was accompanied by David Ron, another IU student from her building. The two went to five North townhomes just a few blocks away from Smallwood to Jay Rosenbaum's apartment, and she met up with a guy named Corey Rossman, which was Jay Rosenbaum's neighbor. She had only known Corey for a few days. After walking a few blocks southeast from five North townhomes, Lauren entered Kilroy Sports Bar at 1.46 a.m. and showed false identification to get in. That bar was pretty, I looked at the map, pretty close to campus. Looks like a big-ass bar, too. Yeah. Yeah, it had two floors and a really large outdoor patio. So yeah. it was a really popular place for, for students to hang out at. Probably pretty simple to get in there with a fake ID, too. Like, you know, some of those places, how, how well are they actually checking? They're just kind of, like, do, going through the motions, like, you know, shining the flashlight on your ID and then just saying, go ahead, get in. I'm sure it wasn't oh, very sure. difficult. Yeah, I saw that reported a couple different ways. One, that she gave a fake ID, and then two, that she just went in. Like, they weren't really carding anybody. It was just kind of a... And both, I mean, yeah, I you could probably easily buy either way. You know, in some of these college towns, I just feel like that's kind of the way it goes. At 2.27 a.m., Lauren was seen leaving Kilroy's with Corey Rossman, extremely intoxicated, and left behind her phone and shoes. Corey walked with Lauren, headed back to her apartment complex. Why she didn't have her shoes on, I guess the the patio at Kilroy's had like a big sand area. Like, I don't know if they were going for like some beach vibe type thing, mm. but she took off her shoes in the patio area with all this sand and she's really, really drunk and just forgot her shoes behind. Understandable. 
the phone Why? thing is a little more shows a little more the level of being drunk i think yeah because yeah. i mean if you already have your shoes off it's probably a lot easier to forget them i don't understand why anyone would ever want to be in sand but that's just me <laughs> at 2 30 a.m after walking two blocks lauren was seen entering the smallwood plaza apartments with Corey. a passerby named zach oaks noticed her level of intoxication and asked if she was okay Corey and lauren took the elevator to the fifth floor where her apartment was located at some point in between getting off the elevator and Lauren's apartment, there was a confrontation between a group of four male students and Corey. In this confrontation, Corey was punched in the face. There is a lot of internet speculation as to the identities of the male students involved in this fight, and the police have never publicly identified anyone. But the way this is widely reported is the male students saw how intoxicated Lauren was, and the situation didn't seem right to them. One of them asked if Lauren was okay. Corey mouthed off and got punched in the face. Yeah, I could see that. But we really don't know. We don't know if that's how it really went down or if those four guys, yeah, if those four guys were looking to start shit with somebody, you know, and said something to this Corey guy. What exactly happened? But he got hit pretty hard, hard enough to split his lip open. And is that based on what he told police? How do police know this confrontation happened? Or did other people come forward like those? Un- those four have never come forward. So this is based off Corey's word. Right. As to why he had a split lip. How do we know this confrontation even happened? Just based on Corey's word? Right. Okay. So like my mind is, is he trying to cover up for why he had a bloody lip? I have I'm- seen that speculated too. Did he, did sure. he try something with Lauren and she hit him? Right. That's what I'm saying. Like if th- this this fight, because they're in a, an apartment building, other people probably would have heard this. So where did we get the word of this confrontation? Is it solely from Corey? Because if so, that doesn't hold a lot of ground, in my opinion. Other people would have heard this confrontation, I would imagine, if it was in the hallway of an apartment complex. It's in the middle of the night, yeah. though. That's what I'm saying. But it, it might wake you up when you have five guys brawling yeah. or fighting in a hallway. This is the biggest wrench in this whole timeline, because the the story would have never we wouldn't even be talking about this right now if this next bit didn't happen. They were basically right outside of her door. They decided to leave her apartment complex and go with Corey back to his place. It's still a complete mystery Mm. as to why that happened. Mm. Just trying to get away from those dudes. But but they were already there. So, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, all she had to do is walk into her apartment and it, you know. Well, she lived with her boyfriend, right? Did they live together? No. Oh, okay. At 2.48 a.m. after she left the apartments, Lauren and Corey entered an alley that runs between College Avenue and Morton Street. Security cameras mounted on nearby apartments show her exit the alley at 2.51 a.m. and walk toward an empty lot. Lauren's keys and purse were found alongside this route through the alley. Lauren and Corey arrived at his apartment shortly after. So now she's lost. She forgot her phone and her shoes at the bar. Mm -hmm. And then walking back to Corey's place, she somehow leaves her keys and her purse behind in an alley. But the only security cameras we have show them exit the alley, correct? Right. In those video, like, could something have happened in the alley? Like, is he trying to, like, fuck with her or mess with her? Or is there really no evidence of that? 
because that's like based at this point in the story that's what my that's where my mind is is like he's the one fucking with her messing with her and he you know he made up the story about the bloody lip because she probably you know hit him or scratched him now they're in the alley she comes out losing these items so I, I guess this is video surveillance is she coming out looking disheveled and like she just had an altercation with them or is she just walking peacefully you know hand in hand with them that's the other odd thing with this case a lot of times in cases like this, you always see the police are pretty quick to publicly show that type of surveillance footage, you know, just mm -hmm. as a as a public thing of like, here's the last time she was seen. A lot of that has not been released at all. There's a picture of her in the apartment wow. with the white, you know, with what she was wearing that night in, in her hallway. Mm -hmm. um, but no, there's not really none of that's been released to the public. And that's the last released photo of her, correct? Right from her apartment, uh, yeah, hallway, and we'll post that one on our socials throughout this week. It's reported that she can barely walk on this route, that she had fallen numerous times, like almost face planting a few times, leaving some bruises and scrapes on her. Also, would have been reported by Corey, right? I was just gonna say that, but reported by who? By Corey, this case too gets into a realm almost of John Benet Ramsey, where uh, USA Today had was reported reported some stuff abc reported some stuff like this whole she was falling down on her way through here but no one's seen that footage footage you know what i mean yeah, the police right. haven't released that footage to anybody so i'm not sure where stuff like abc and usa today are getting that information from because i would guarantee they haven't seen the footage so the face planning a few times leaving scrapes and bruises that would only have been reported by the few people who saw her from this point forward in the story. Correct. Yeah. Michael Beth, Corey's roommate, was at the apartment because he decided to stay in and work on a school paper. Corey himself was very intoxicated and stumbling. He vomited on the carpet on the way upstairs. Michael Beth stated that he helped Corey get into bed. He then tried to talk Lauren into sleeping over for her own safety, and he claimed that Lauren said she wanted to go back to her own apartment. At 3.30 a.m., Michael Best said he called his neighbor, Jay Rosenbaum, wanting him to take care of Lauren. Michael said that Lauren was attempting to get him to go back to her apartment and drink with her more. Jeez. And we'll, we'll talk about it later, too. But Michael Beth, as far as his statements are concerned, he sounds like he's just dumped off with this girl that he doesn't even know that is completely wasted. And he's like, Hey, one of you guys right. that knows her, yeah, that's sure. actually friends with her needs to take care of the situation because I'm just, I would not even go out tonight. I'm just hanging out by myself. Right. You know, he's just trying to play call of duty and just mind his own business. <laughs> she eventually went to Jay Rosenbaum's apartment where he observed a bruise under her eye, presumably from her falling earlier in the evening. She told him that she didn't know how she got the bruise. Two calls were placed from Jay's phone shortly before she was reported to have left. Rosenbaum said he placed both calls, one to David Braun, who Lauren started the night with, and one to another friend. Neither picked up and no messages were left. So maybe trying to get her a ride home or someone to take care of her. At 4.30 a.m., Jay Rosenbaum reported that Lauren left the apartment. This is the last reported sighting of her. He reported seeing Lauren at the intersection of 11th Street and College Avenue headed south on college. She was last seen barefoot, wearing a white tank top, a white blouse, and black leggings. Boy, I don't know about this. I mean, I know intoxicated women are a pain in the ass, but you just can't let her leave like that. No, that that's pretty irresponsible you just by can't. him just to you let can't her do that. walk out like that. 
Mm-hmm. There's an odd account that would put a wrench in this timeline if it's accurate. At 3.38 a.m., a bar manager reported seeing a, quote, mystery man throw an intoxicated woman matching Lauren's description over his shoulder near 10th Street and College Avenue. So is that presumably Corey carrying her back? She should have already been at the apartment then. Because, you know, throwing her over his shoulders like that and, you know, walking down that alley where they find her keys and purse, that makes sense then. Right, but that would throw a whole... Right wrench in this timeline because at 3 30 a.m michael beth said he's already standing there with her calling his neighbor calling jay rosabom saying you know get her out of here yeah someone did, come take care an of hour her. later did michael beth and jay rosenbaum both state they were sober that night michael beth was okay I, so his his memory if you trust him would have been accurate right or, or more accurate than everyone else did did Michael Beth ever report or were there any indications that after he put shit, what's the dude's name? His roommate, Corey, after he put Corey to bed, did Corey get up at all again or no? No. Okay. So that would have, if if this is all accurate and the truth, that was the, when Corey got home and threw up on the stairs that right. and got in bed, that was the end of the night for him. Okay. I was just trying to rule out whether or not they went back. There was a chance they could have went back out at 3.30, and that's what the bartender saw. No further questions, Your Honor. <laughs> that report was originally posted by a popular uh, blogger that blogged about this case named Tony Gatto, and it was repeated by mainstream news outlets. A police spokesman would later confirm that investigators looked into the bar manager's account but couldn't find video evidence to support the t- that witness's timeline. Yeah, John I can't Cutter. find video support for lots of stuff. That doesn't mean it's not true. Right. <laughs> John Cutter, a private investigator that was hired by Lauren's parents, said that his team interviewed the same witness. He believes that the woman described was Lauren, but he isn't sure that the stated time frame is accurate. There's other reports out there that when Corey and Lauren were walking back, that he did put her over his shoulder mm. because she couldn't walk. And the private investigators are thinking that the bar manager had the time wrong. Like their 3.30, the bar manager's account of 3.38 a.m. is wrong. That it was actually, you know, would have been, when were they walking home? Like an hour before, right? It right. It could have been, Yeah. That he did that this bar manager did see Lauren and Corey, but their time was wrong. Yeah, I think that's logical. Sure. She was seen leaving Kilroy's at 227, according to our original thing. So that would have been about an hour and 10 minutes before this. So you could have just got your time mixed up. You could have. I think that's plausible. Also, how late are fucking bars open in Indiana? Yeah, they're open a little longer than than us here in Ohio. I should know this, and I don't. It's 3.38 a.m., and he's seeing this happen, which means which tells me the bar's probably still open. And, you know, that's why he's half observing it, half doing his job. But goddamn. Yeah, I think it's, what, 2.30, you got to be out in Ohio, right? Yeah. yeah. So, that yeah, was, they're an hour more be. than us. I'm not seeing 2.30 at any bars nowadays, so. No, when I was reading this. all these kids they started pre-gaming to go out at like midnight i'm like god damn i'm like jesus (laughs) (laughs) hell no in the early afternoon of june 3rd lauren's boyfriend jesse wolf tried repeatedly to reach her via phone 
until an employee at Kilroy's text him back to tell him that the phone was left there. At approximately 4.30 p.m., Jesse reported Lauren missing to the Bloomington Police Department. Sometime later, on June 3rd, Lauren's father, Robert, received a call from his other daughter, Rebecca, who told him that Lauren's friends have reported, had reported her missing to the Bloomington Police. Robert called her boyfriend, Jesse Wolf, who was already at the police station. Lauren's parents then immediately began calling hospitals and clinics in the Bloomington area to see if anyone matching Lauren's description had been admitted. The following day on June 4th, 2011, Lauren's parents arrived in Bloomington to assist in the search for their daughter, and the case had already started to get extensive media coverage. On June 7th, at a press conference at Bloomington Police Headquarters, Lieutenant Bill Parker said, quote, When somebody at 4.30 in the morning, no shoes, and has earlier been drinking, goes out and then just disappears off a street corner, we feel like there certainly could be foul play involved. Yeah, I would agree with that. I still can't believe this and, guy let her leave like that. Like I wouldn't like about Jay, the yeah, Rose Bomb guy. Like I wouldn't let one no. of you guys leave like that, let alone a young right. girl. I mean, come on. Oh, thanks, Dave. Cares about us. <laughs> See? No, I agree. Like I at least or, or at least leave, but walk, escort her back to her place. A- absolutely, of course. Call her a taxi or at least at the very least, call her an Uber or a taxi so that you know she's gonna get to where she's gotta go. Yeah. It's awful. Awful behavior. What would be stopping him from just, I mean, she lives what? It was like two blocks away. So what's stopping so, him from yeah. just walking the two blocks? Yeah, right. right. Like, who a does that? Pally and walk her back. It's not even like she was a, a random girl he just met. He was friends with this girl from way back. Right. I mean, come yeah. on. But that's, you know, that's, that's the story we were given. Also, we don't know all of this to be true. True. Always true. Later that evening, police bring a search warrant to the Smallwood apartment complex for the building surveillance footage and find the door to the security office locked. So they just broke it down with a battering ram. Oh, well, sure. They're cops. They do whatever they want. (laughs) (laughs) Is that really necessary? You can't call someone and get a key? Yeah, just say, fuck this. (laughs) A couple days ago, I just had to have the police help get me into my own car because I locked my keys in the car. (laughs) So police couldn't just kind of get themselves into this door, like just nicely open the door. Like they had to, you know, bust the whole thing down. Did I tell you guys that story? No. No. Well, that was a whole thing. (laughs) I had to drive uh, 45 minutes. Well, I will tell that off air. Any hoodles. Also on June 7, Jay Rosenbaum hired attorneys Jennifer Lukemeyer and Jim Voiles, and all the male students involved in the last night Lauren was seen quickly obtained lawyers over the following days, including her boyfriend, which we know from our Dave, your PSA. Yeah, oh, I, I never talked. I don't, I don't uh, disparage them at all for that, no matter what it is. I, I don't think you can hold that against them in this situation. Like they're just, I think that's, you're doing your due diligence and you're being smart. I agree. It doesn't necessarily mean you're guilty just because you're doing this. We'll CYA, see. cover your ass. <laughs> I mean, just based on the history, the history in this country of how cops have railroaded people and, you know, flat out lied during testimony. Absolutely. Don't ever talk to him without an attorney. Yeah, I, I, I just yeah, I don't think protecting yourself means you're guilty in situations like this, especially in situations like this. I, I would agree. Yeah, I don't fault them at all for for getting lawyers quickly like that. We'll see later on in in, in this story that th- this gets pretty muddy between the family and, and these boys regarding the lawyers, like how quickly they lawyered up and things like that. But 
Oh, of course, it's you not going to be viewed uh, like said, that in their eyes. So that makes complete sense as well. If I was one of the people that lived on the same floor as Michael Beth and Jay Rosenbaum, the, you know, the neighbors that kind of passed her off that night, even if I was one of those people that lived on that floor and had nothing to do with this, I'd probably still lawyer up just so that if I was questioned, you know, I kind of had someone there and, and was looking out for my own interest as well. Just saying. I don't disagree with that. The next day on June 8th, Bloomington police acting on an anonymous and quote, very specific tip sent a dive team to search Lake Monroe south of Bloomington near the Four Winds Resort and Marina. That dive turned up nothing. Due to the media coverage a few days later, Texas EquiSearch arrived in Bloomington to look for Lauren, and that night America's Most Wanted aired the first of two segments about her. Texas EquiSearch is one of the largest, if not the largest, search team in the U.S. They helped look for high-profile missing persons cases like Natalie Holloway and Kaylee Anthony. Did we discuss them on Missing 411? Were they involved in, what, in some of those stories, or was it not them? I don't remember. I wouldn't be surprised, though. I, they're involved yeah. in a lot. I think they came out for that one, guys. Yeah. They were definitely the one we in talked one of those about cases. Earlier, off air, right? The big one? The kid that was like... Well, that was in the 50s or something, I think. Well, I think it was I believe a more recent one. Th- I think that they were involved in the one that the documentary covered, that Dior, uh, Dior Coons. Oh, maybe that's there what it go. was, yeah. Yeah, I believe that they, they have gone out there and searched... Missing 411, available in the archives, a very popular episode amongst listeners. On June 13th, a reporter at a press conference asked Bloomington police spokesman if the department has heard rumors that Lauren might have died from a drug overdose and that fellow students might have panicked and disposed of her body. Spokesman replied, quote, have we heard information along those lines? Absolutely. That theory was amplified by her parents' earlier announcement that their daughter had long QT syndrome, which is a rare heart condition. So doing drugs probably not great. No, and the drugs that we're going to get into in a bit here, if it's accurate, it would could 100% kill somebody with that that heart disease or that heart condition. On June 15th, police released grainy surveillance images of a white pickup truck that appeared to pass twice through the area where Lauren was last seen on the morning she went missing. In one of the pictures, the truck seemed to have something in the bed just behind the extended cab, which the public kind of ran wild with their imagination, saying it resembled a human figure. Police cleared that driver a few days later, but the random abduction theory remains, you know, one of their top theories. In August 2011, police conducted a nine-day search of the Sycamore Ridge landfill in Pimento for clues in the disappearance. The landfill is where the trash from Bloomington is hauled after a stop at a transfer station. The Bloomington Police Department, the Indiana University Police Department, and the FBI took part in the search, but it turned up nothing. As of May 24, 2013, investigators had received 3,060 tips on Lauren's disappearance, with 100 of them being received in the first half of 2013. So two years later at this point, then, still no sign. Going back then to what you said about the, the white pickup truck, is it just because of the images people make it out to be like there's a body in the back? Or like, you know, was it, the, was it actually the same pickup truck that went by twice? It just seems that just seems very random. It was the same pickup truck that went by twice. Mm-hmm. So police released the pictures and said, hey, we want to talk to whoever has this truck. And yeah. the person with that truck came forward 
said, hey, that was me. I have nothing to do with it. They cleared the guy. See, I don't know. When someone comes forward like that, like, I don't know. To me, that holds a lot of weight and makes me think like, yeah, they're not hiding anything in my mind. No, I mean, that would probably be a huge oh shit moment. You see your truck on the news like, oh, no, I need to burn my truck. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or lawyer up. Be smart. Lawyer up. If you know you had nothing to do with it. Get yourself a lawyer. Go down there like, yeah, that was my truck. Here's what I was doing. Thank you. Fuck you. Bye. We'll be right back. Is there something interfering with your happiness? Something keeping you from achieving your 2020 goals? Let's face it. These are certainly trying times. From being cooped up inside your home to wondering how you're going to pay next month's bills, we're all experiencing some form of stress or strain on our mental health. And for that, BetterHelp is here for us. BetterHelp is an online mental health provider that will assess your needs and match you up with your own licensed professional therapist. The best part? No waiting rooms. That's a pretty big deal if you're as impatient as I am. BetterHelp is a safe and private online environment that will have you communicating with a counselor within the first 24 hours. And once you've begun, you can send your counselor a message at any time, always getting a helpful response in a timely manner. You even have the ability to schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all from the comfort of your very own couch. BetterHelp is available worldwide and has a broad range of expertise available, including licensed professional counselors who specialize in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflict, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're currently recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Not happy with your counselor? No worries. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches and makes it easy and free to change counselors if needed. Remember, everything you share with your BetterHelp counselor is completely confidential. And while it's not a crisis line, it is a convenient, professional, and affordable way to seek the help you deserve. Financial aid is even offered to those who qualify. Want to hear how BetterHelp assisted people just like you? Check out the testimonials posted daily on their site. Look, we here at Necronomapod want you to start living a happier life. So, as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com necro. Join over 1 million people already taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, better H-E-L-P dot com slash necro. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. A number of theories have emerged in reference to what happened to Lauren that evening, and her parents have stated they believe their daughter is dead. They've accepted that at this point. Based on her level of intoxication, they also felt that she may have been drugged while at the bar. Quote, We felt somebody could have slipped something into her drink at Kilroy's, said her father, Robert Spear. Entirely possible, right? Yeah. That, I was literally just thinking, like, that's what makes the story so crazy is... Any number of these things that we've discussed could be true. Like there's just, she could have been drugged. She could have OD'd on something. She could have, you know, there could have been foul play involved with something. You just, you don't know. The thing I was curious 
and I couldn't find anything about it, was how intoxicated was she when she got to Kilroy's? Because that would make you think more of the being drugged at the bar thing if if it went to like zero to 100 that short time she was at the bar. Right. right. It's a good point. And there's no reports that when she left her boyfriend that did, was she even with her boyfriend that night earlier when he decided N- to stay in? No, he just didn't go okay, out. So he didn't see. We don't know if there's surveillance at the bar door like to watch, see as she's like getting her ID checked. Right. I would imagine not. They probably would have looked at that. Yeah, not that at least not that it's been publicly were you know reported right. to the public. I mean, you can tell if she's falling over and like the bouncers trying to help stand her up as opposed to her casually walking in. She was only at the bar for a half hour. So you're not going to go zero to a hundred that quickly on drinks unless something happened at the bar. And you'd like to think the bouncer, if you know, she tried to come in that intoxicated that he might, you know, not let her in. That's what I mean. Like, yeah. you know, could we tell in, on, on a surveillance if she was, you know, did the bouncer? Yeah. I, I'm assuming not. I'm assuming she probably seemed OK, but, you know, maybe she was holding it together. I don't know. But she, I mean, she was only at the bar for a half hour based on the report that the, you know, Corey gave. Right. The family has voiced suspicions about the men she was with that evening, as well as her boyfriend, Jesse Wolf, since they all refused to take police issued polygraphs and retained lawyers really quick after Lauren's disappearance. The old polygraph test. Yeah, I, I don't fault any of them for not taking a police issued polygraph. I would never do it. Never. Can we can we have a new shirt that's just a picture of an old like polygraph machine and underneath it it just says bullshit? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or just something or like ridiculous or just something because I feel like that'd be a fun shirt. I'd wear that. And you know, I, I I don't fault her parents at all because I don't I don't know what it would be like to be in that situation. And I think you know if I really try to put myself in that in that situation, and it was my daughter that went missing in this in this same exact situation, I would be like, okay, so what are you guys hiding? That would be my first thought. I feel like anybody instinct yeah. would be like, okay, so what are you guys hiding? Sure, I don't disagree. I, yeah, it, like we always say, it's hard to put ourselves in that situation. I don't fault these young men for getting attorneys and I don't fault the parents for going after everybody. Cause I'd be the, I did the same thing in both situations. I think the parents have not made any specific accusations like against like they haven't singled out one of these young men publicly, but they have been very vocal in saying that they think that these young men know more than they've told the police through their attorneys the men have responded that they have private they have taken privately administered polygraphs as well as one from the fbi they say that since they don't trust the bloomington police that's why they retain lawyers and it's not clear if all of them have taken a polygraph done by the fbi or, or what the results of that were and it's not clear as to what the results of the privately administered polygraphs were either because nobody released it, anything right and those those privately administered ones you know playing both sides of the fence here those can be really softball polygraphs mm-hmm. and those are done by defense right. attorneys a lot of times to see so the defense attorney can see where their client is is their client telling them the truth what are we dealing with here and the most famous one is oj Robert Shapiro had him take a polygraph and OJ failed that miserably. Right. We don't know the details of any of this stuff. OJ Simpson available in the archives. (laughs) 
lawyers for Jay Rosenbaum issued a release asserting that Rosenbaum provided full statements to authorities, allowed a search of his home, agreed to give a DNA sample, and took a polygraph test. Well, it's pretty generous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you didn't have anything to do with it. Yeah, this is your you friend. It's a, of course, that's what you should do. Lawyers also presided over a sit down with Rosenbaum and Lauren's parents. Quote, he was pretty frank with them. Some of it they admitted they may not want to hear, but they've been pretty realistic, I think. Lauren's father, Robert Spear, later said, quote, we've met with two of the boys, Jay and Jesse. One of the other boys flat out refuses to speak with us or to the private investigators, and that's Corey Rossman. So this is where I said this is going to start getting a little ugly with uh, between the parents and some of these boys. How else could it go, you know? In response and in a rare public interview, Corey Rossman told the Journal News, quote, it's inappropriate the way they're harassing people that are also victims in this case. We've done nothing wrong. If we'd done something wrong, we would have been arrested already. All they're doing is hurting my career. Now, I think it's pretty clear to point out, too, with Corey, that he's never been considered a suspect in this case. He's only been named a person of interest, and that was in the very early stages of the investigation. Because he went to bed, he has a, a his witness there that saw him go to bed. I mean, he's essentially cleared based on eyewitness testimony. Well, but we don't necessarily know what happened at the bar to get her intoxicated, nor what happened in the alley where she lost some of her personal possessions, nor why he had a cut on his face. Well, it's true, but she was still alive when he went to bed and passed sure. her off. If this is all true. Yeah, yeah, everyone could have got, yeah, everyone could have got together and made up a lie. Who knows? Yeah. The only other public statement from Corey was in response to the Indianapolis Monthly reaching out to him saying, quote, I do not normally talk to reporters at all because of the exact reason of the lies that are being spread about me in articles such as those which came out the past few days. If you have some way to prove my name wouldn't be slandered and what I say actually gets across and I'm not portrayed in the terrible light the lying slanders people connected to this case have portrayed me in, then I'd consider talking to you. Otherwise, I have nothing to say to you and you can refer all questions to my lawyer, Carl Salzman. Well, that goes back to the USA Today stuff that you were talking about a little bit ago with the unsubstantiated Yeah, a lot of back and forth. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, there's reports that say he was the one that had her over his shoulder, mm-hmm. you know, and, that, and none of that's confirmed. So let's let's just say that he didn't do anything wrong. He was just as drunk as she was and got punched in the face and all this stuff happened. It's just a bad night. And now he's mixed up in this. Yeah, I I, I understand his standpoint. If, if that were the case, you just want to be left the fuck alone. Regarding Lauren's level of intoxication, Her friends and Jesse Wolf told police that she used drugs in addition to alcohol in the night leading up to her disappearance. This gets a little ugly, even with the boyfriend's parents. You know, they're feeling like Lauren's parents are putting pressure on on their son, and he wasn't even there that night. Jesse Wolf's mother publicly alleged that Lauren was asked to leave summer camp where she met her son and Jay Rosenbaum years earlier because of drug use. Jesse Wolf's mother said, quote, this poor little girl is not with us today because of her drug abuse. That's a terrible thing to say. Yeah, it's, that seems pretty harsh, especially for someone who's not around to defend herself. Uh, what does she know? That's unsubstantiated hearsay. I gotta say, a lot of people in this country like to do drugs. You know, doesn't make them a bad person. It doesn't make them necessarily a drug abuser. Maybe they're a drug user. It's two different things. And I think from this lady's standpoint, 
she's probably being aggressive. She's coming out to the defense of her son. So that's where her mind's at. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying she's, you know, she feels her son's being wrongly attacked. So she's kind of coming out swinging. No, I get it. It's it's a lot of emotions here. This is, um, yeah, not the right thing to say, but I, I, I kind of understand that she's just kind of being like mama bear here. Yeah, I, I get that. It, it's still not a very nice thing to publicly say about a girl that's missing. Of course not. And a girl that you probably know and, you know, know well because your son's been dating her for how many years now? The whole turn of events, I think, is what with the boyfriend is what made Lauren's parents question him because he helped the search for two days and then he just he got a lawyer and stopped communication with them completely. So I feel like in their mind, it's, hey, we've known you for years. You've dated our daughter for years. And now all of a sudden you're lawyering up Yep. and you're not going to help find her now. Yep. And then, you know, so they start putting suspicion on him. And then the mom, you know, his mom comes out and says this and it's, it's it gets really right. ugly. Well, and it, it probably, you know, from his standpoint, if he's getting questioned by police over and over again, I would lawyer up too and be like, you know what? I'm detaching myself from this situation because I'm getting myself in too deep here. You know, it, it's just, I don't know. This is tough. There's so many different angles to go by here. Jay Rosenbaum told investigators that Lauren consumed alcohol, snorted cocaine, and also snorted crushed up clonopin tablets that evening. Her rare heart condition that we talked about, long QT syndrome, added to the danger of drug use. I mean, that stop your I heart. I can't imagine. Yeah, snorting cocaine with a, you know, mm-hmm. a heart condition is not a great idea. There's also some news outlets that reported that ecstasy may have also been taken along with these drugs. Is that just based on the reports kind of running wild, though, or there's nothing to substantiate it? But that's what's that's what's been reported out there. I'm just going to say that that's a pretty wild combo if that's what she was taking. Yeah, it is. I personally know someone that's was on took clonopin for anxiety issues and uh, and they had to get off of it pretty quickly because it just, you know, it's a benzodiazepine like Xanax. Mm -hmm. You know, it made them just completely out of it. Like they drank 12, 12 beers or so, you know, within a half hour of taking the pill. So I can't imagine snorting it on top of drinking, too. And I was when I was looking at clonopin, just kind of getting an idea of snorting it. It's the deadliest benzo. Mm. It's not a great idea to snort it. If that's what she was doing, we don't know. Yeah. Nor for anyone else for that matter. Yeah, no, I would avoid doing that. It seems really counterproductive too to snort cocaine and then snort something like clonopin Mm. right after. Yeah. (laughs) Just a little, little counterproductive. Bo Deitel, a private investigator hired by the Spear family, doubts that a fatal drug overdose could be enough motive to hide her death. He cited the prevalence of drug abuse on the IU campus and, quote, every kid's buying pot, cocaine, drinking pills, he said. I mean, it's all over the place. So that really can't be the motive behind it. And I kind of agree with that. I was trying to put myself in the position of somebody having an overdose you're gonna. You're not gonna call the police. You're gonna call nine one one for help. Would they arrest everybody? That my thought the whole time was, kind of you know, if they're gonna play that that she OD'd angle, why would everyone be in cahoots to like hide the body and hide this? Right. There's. I can't that just figure out the logic behind doing that. 
I mean, I understand you're probably initially scared, but I just don't see it. I don't see everyone keeping quiet and coming up with this whole elaborate story or, you know, working in cahoots and hiding a body just because someone, you know, died of a, an overdose. Yeah. So I, I, I think I kind of agree with you, Ian. I, I could see it panic up front, maybe, but I don't think you'd be able to hold it together this long with all right, those that's multiple people. I, right. Right. The only way that it, in my mind, when I was trying to run through this, like if you if you witness her start to overdose, you're, you're going to panic, like you guys said. But then you're going to someone's in that group is going to call nine one one. You would think so. Yeah, you would. You would think, and you would hope. You yeah, you would hope so. The only other thing that I could think of with this theory, and we'll I'm sure we'll talk about it more later, but if she never really left at four thirty a.m., if she did stay. Mm-hmm. And she died in her sleep and they woke up to a dead body. Then I could see freaking out and attempting to come up with a plan to get rid of her body. Yeah, I think that that would make the most sense with that angle. If that's, it, you know, if you go, so you're saying angle. she sleeps at Rosenbaum's house right that night. Like maybe she passes out there and he claims she walked away and left. But meanwhile, she passed out there the next morning or a few hours later, they find out she's dead. And then they're like, oh, shit, we need to get rid of this body. Let's figure this out or or just him or, you know, I don't know. It's 100 percent possible. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. It's just weird that, you know, I don't know. I find it odd that so many people not odd. It just hurts that so many people would go into hiding over some poor girl's death because of that just to cover themselves. That they're not going to at least, you know, get some closure out of this to yeah. the family. Further fueling that accidental overdose theory on September 2nd, 2010, nine months before her disappearance, Lauren was arrested on charges of public intoxication and illegal consumption. Also, after her disappearance, police found, quote, a small amount of cocaine in her room. I don't understand where people on the internet or news outlets ran wild with her getting arrested for public intoxication because she's a college student. Yeah, no, they take it and then they paint her out to be a party girl who, you know, she did. She brought this on herself because clearly here she's irresponsible and, you know, she's a drug addict and an alcoholic because she had a public intox or whatever. So, you know, this is on her. It's absurd. And the other thing, too, about her having to her getting kicked out of that summer camp thing, it's been confirmed that that happened. The The boyfriend's mom said it was for drug use, but nobody knows what that was really for. She mm. could have just smoked a cigarette at camp and they said, yeah, you got to go. Sure. Yeah. I mean, she you could have just you, been caught like fucking her boyfriend in a cabin or something like, you know, they were all there together. Right. Yeah. It could have been anything. Yeah. I think that the public intoxication, putting that on her, that. It would lead to her being, you know, taking some drugs that would cause her to overdose is pretty unfair. Yeah, I agree. Lauren's parents filed a civil lawsuit against Corey Rossman, Jay Rosenbaum, and Michael Beth. The suit accused the men of negligence, alleging that Rossman and Rosenbaum supplied Lauren with alcohol after she was, quote, visibly intoxicated and then neglected to assure she returned safely to her apartment, which likely led to her death. Well... There was a lot of negligence. I'll say that for sure. The family has stated they hope the lawsuit would lead to the men coming forward with more information about what occurred that night. Her mother said, quote, I truly don't think it was a random abduction. I think that somebody that Lauren knew was responsible for the events of that evening. 
as part of that suit, they subpoenaed private cell phone and academic records spanning 134 days before and after the night Lauren disappeared, a move that the men have called, quote, a fishing expedition. Do judges generally sign subpoenas for just civil cases like that? Yeah. To get cell phone records and all that kind of stuff for a civil suit? Yeah, I guess they'd have to, right? With a negligence one like this, yeah. Mm. In 2013, federal judge Tanya Walton Pratt dismissed the suit against Michael Beth, ruling that he had no duty to care for Lauren. In 2014, Pratt dismissed the suit against the other two men, stating, quote, Unfortunately, there could be any number of theories as to what happened to Lauren and what, if any, injuries may have been sustained. Without evidence to prove these theories, it would be impossible for a jury to determine if whatever happened to Spear was a natural, improbable consequence of her intoxication without any other intervening acts that would break the causal chain. So I, I can see where that judge is coming from because they, it could get into a very slippery slope there. You know, like we could use my night as an example where I was super drunk and got lost in our neighborhood like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and I called Mike for help to find my way home. I can't remember if he got off the phone with me before I got home or not, but let's say that he did. He was like, okay, you know where you're at now? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. And I got off the phone. You know, if he was the last person that talked to me at that point, then that would, you would, he could be responsible for me going missing if I went missing yeah. after that. And I can also point detectives to the exact moment when you lost consciousness. And that was when you ripped five shots of fireball in 32 <laughs> seconds. And I could say that officers is when he lost control of the evening and I warned him not to do it. <laughs> but it's like, where, where does... talk to my lawyers, motherfuckers. <laughs> At what point do you stop being responsible for me? Yeah, when you no, take I, when I you take it. that phone call. Yeah. In all fairness, you were not incapable of walking home at that time. You were just uh, you were very drunk, but also just your typical. I don't know where the fuck I'm going self. Yeah, I do that sober, so it's not really right. Exactly. But I mean, like if you were falling over, like I would have helped you get home. As you know. Based on this story, we've said multiple times now that Jay Rosen, Rosenbaum should have helped get her home, probably, based on that narrative. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think they should be held legally responsible? I don't know. M morally responsible? Absolutely. Letting, yeah. that, letting that girl leave like that. I don't, depends what the law says, I guess. Apparently, you're not. I, think I don't it's think it's hard I, to legally enforce I, making you responsible for other people's actions, like you said. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Like, I, ju I just don't know how how you can based on what limited information we have, really. I'll save my thoughts to the end. There are a few people that, you know, I think are much more guilty than others. Keeping on the theory that the men she was with were somehow involved or that there was an accidental overdose. Tips led private investigators hired by Lauren's parents to an inmate at Indiana State Prison named Corey Hammersley. Hammersley was a top student and athlete who got heavily involved in drugs once he would start attending IU and had a complete mental breakdown. One year before Lauren's disappearance, he walked out of his townhouse wearing nothing but a hat and opened fire into a random house and then started opening fire on police. For this, he was arrested and sentenced to 20 years in prison. While in prison, he was playing cards with another inmate and regarding a news story about Lauren that was on TV, said, quote, man, I knew the guys that did that. 
The inmate said Hammersleeve went on to further say, quote, they were drinking and doing ecstasy and she OD'd. It scared them. They didn't know what to do with her and they took her down to the Ohio River and got rid of her, disposed of her body. When police and private investigators went to talk to Hammersley about what he knew, he refused to talk to them. And even if he did know something, he wouldn't tell the he wouldn't help police. So if this guy was locked up a year prior to this happening, how would he have any access to any information regarding this case? That's what I don't get here. Like one of these guys visit him in prison and confess to him or something. I don't know if he heard through. I don't know if it would be family members or any other friends that came to visit him in prison. Mm. He was heavily involved in drugs. So I took it as just kind of somehow part of a drug ring where they're, you know, all connected and gossiping. Maybe. But he was already in jail before any of this happened. Well, but maybe his buddies were too and or or people who come to see people. All right. So just um, word of mouth stuff like that. Okay. Did this guy have a habit for being kind of like an uh, attention seeker? Like, was he looking for for just people to just get eyes on him that we know of? You know, I don't, I don't know. I, I think you could take this as one of two ways. Either it's him running his mouth in prison, just talking shit, you know, you know, I mean, obviously we know from other true crime stuff that guys do this a lot. It's like that kind of like peacocking thing. Yeah. Or that's what he really heard and said it because it, what, he didn't go to the police with this or anything. The inmate, the right. inmate that he told it to was the one that was like, hey, I'm going to get some some brownie points out of this and go tell the guards what this guy just said. And then when the police went to Hammersley, he you know basically told them to fuck off. He wasn't talking. Is there any reason to believe that Hammersley was just looking for an excuse to like egg the cops on and then be like, fuck you? And I don't think so. If you go along, if if it's if this story is how if how it's reported is how it happened, he was just playing cards with another inmate and just said it. Well, that's what I mean. Like in maybe private conversation, knew, like maybe he knew, oh, this guy's a snitch. I'll tell him something just to get, you know, the cops fired up and then I'll go tell them to fuck themselves just because I like to fuck with the cops. I guess that's what I was lean, like just hinting at. Like is I don't know. I'll clear. I'll work it out in my head. <laughs> I don't know. In my opinion, this holds a lot of weight. I think this holds a lot of weight. This this little scenario here. Really? Okay. Yes, I do. In my research for this, on lots of things on Reddit and pretty much all over, anywhere that people can comment on anything to do with this case, there's always a handful of people that say, I went to IU at this time. This is exactly what happened. Really? What it, Hammersley said, like G.O.D., they got scared, they hid the body. Yeah. If you go, like I said, on anything related to this case where people can comment, there's always a handful that say she OD'd and they got rid of her body. Everybody knows it. That's the rumor. Or, you know, everybody's heard that. That's mm -hmm. exactly what happened. Mm. All right. We'll save more of that for the end, I guess. There was a, a lot of stir with a biker gang theory. In Indiana, there's an, a notorious motorcycle gang called the Sons of Silence. There was a documentary film about them on the History Channel that described them as so brutal as to be a new kind of mafia. The alleged link to Lauren's case came in the form of tips about a former member of the group, Robert Strange, who goes by the name of Bo Dean. Strange doesn't have a criminal record, but he is well known to authorities. Authorities said, quote, He's got a reputation for being what they call an enforcer. 
If you have a problem in your gang, you come to him and he takes care of it. Authorities said they obtained an online message in which one of Strange's relatives claimed that Strange shot Lauren in a dispute over drugs and money and then buried her on his property. Quote, it's good fertilizer, the message read. What? 2020 went to talk to Strange and he knew that ABC News was coming, but he said he didn't want to be on camera. From the doorway of his home, he said, quote, no, I didn't shoot her. I had nothing to do with it. I don't even know the broad. I told you that there ain't nobody here and I ain't never seen the broad, never been around her. How many times can you work broad in a one sentence? Goddamn, Pally. Yeah. Real <laughs> nice guy. Yeah. I don't hold much weight to this theory. I just have an angry I, relative I just, trying to set him up. I don't think there's anything here. Yeah. I don't buy this one one bit. Yeah. And the police looked at her, uh, at Lauren's cell phone records, and that's the same outcome they came to is that somebody this guy was someone that had a lot of enemies so it was somebody trying to cause problems for him right they saw a story about drugs so they instantly were like oh there's a connection let's just you know get him involved and we know this this kind of stuff and especially with this next theory we're getting gonna get into that kind of stuff happens a lot you remember back on patreon we did son of sam and back in the day Everybody was blaming other people on saying that people were the son of Sam, calling in tips. The ex-wives were calling in saying their husband was oh, yeah. the son of Sam. Tons of tips. <laughs> there were guys that owed money to loan sharks saying that the loan sharks were son of Sam to get, you know. Yeah, get himself an extra week to pay. <laughs> right. <laughs> this kind of stuff up. happens a lot. Didn't we release Son of Sam as a, a regular show, too? Like for the New Year show? Yes. Yes, so it's not did. just Patreon. That's back in the archives as well. That was just kind of like, uh, here's what you're missing on Patreon type gimmick. Either way, it's out there. Go list them. The next theory going along with a random person was the ex-con white truck theory. Like we said earlier, on the night Lauren disappeared, police said a white truck was spotted on surveillance footage not far from where she was last seen, and it passed by that area twice. Police discovered an ex-convict named James McClish, who was just released from prison for assaulting his ex-wife at the time and drove a similar white truck. He was living in a halfway house about 10 minutes from where Lauren disappeared. A woman from McClish's past reached out and said, quote, you need to check him out. He was there. He made comments like, you know what happened to her, meaning Lauren, the same thing could happen to you. The woman alleged McClish had killed Lauren and then buried her on a farm in southern Indiana. But that doesn't That's necessarily add up to me. You know what happened to her? The same thing can happen to you. That doesn't mean he killed her. You know, Did, she's just all over the news at that point. It means he's an asshole, but... Yeah, he's an asshole, and they, it sounds like they had a pretty tumultuous relationship, and, you know, maybe her thing was just kind of to get back at him, so she reported him. An ex would never do that, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> course not and if they did they'd be fucking crazy and ian would find a marriage material like he did jody arias <laughs> available in the patreon archives i saw someone on the facebook group the other day commented they were talking about patreon someone said they were thinking about joining and someone commented and said do it for the jody arias episode if nothing else really yeah wow okay see, see? Is that our best Patreon episode? Is that what the masses think? I don't know. Okay. It's not our worst. No, they're going to think fucking the paranormal erotica. <laughs> they all get fucking off on that one. That's a clit rubber, Mike. Yeah, I guess so. 
it all makes sense. It's all, you know, fucking cryptids. The clit included. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when McClish was approached, he agreed to take a lie detector test to prove his innocence. 2020 arranged for the test to be conducted by a veteran polygraph examiner, Ralph Neves, uh, who was a former NYPD detective. When it came to questions about Lauren, McClish stuck to his denials. He answered calmly and clearly. He said he had nothing to do with Lauren's disappearance. Neve said that McClish appeared to be telling the truth. And after the test was all over, McClish said, quote, I wish you guys the best of luck. I do. So, eh, I don't think this guy did it. No, especially that he's just like, yeah, I'll take the lie detector test. I don't give a shit. Yeah, I agree. In April of 2015, there was a big, uh, at the time, they felt a big break in the case. In April of 2015, the Bloomington police announced that they were investigating a possible link between Lauren's disappearance and the murder of another IU student, Hannah Wilson. Wilson went missing on April 24th, 2015, after visiting Kilroy's, which was the same bar that Lauren visited the night that she disappeared. Wilson was last seen getting into a taxi in front of the bar and driving away. Her body was found the next morning in Brown County. There's a local man named Daniel Messel who was arrested for the murder after his cell phone was discovered near the body. Lauren's parents have previously stated, like we said, that they do not believe her disappearance was a random abduction. And in July of 2015, their private investigator concluded that the two cases are unrelated and any similarities between the two were just coincidental. And that guy's in prison for killing Hannah? Yes, he is. Okay. He sounded like a real uh, real genius. Mm, yeah. From what I read, her, her cell phone was literally, his cell phone was literally laying at her feet pretty much. Oh, good God. Mm. Yeah, I don't think these are related. Coincidental, perhaps, but not related. I agree. The most recent development was regarding a guy named Justin Wagers. On July 28, 2016, the FBI and other police agencies investigated a property in the 2900 block of Old Morgantown Road in Martinsville. According to a statement released by the FBI, the investigators were, quote, following up on leads and tips in Morgan County today regarding the disappearance of Lauren Spearer. The property that was searched belongs to the family of Justin Wagers, who was arrested in August of 2015 in an indecent exposure case. He was accused of exposing himself to a woman at a Shell gas station. Police had been investigating a serial flasher, wanted in several cases prior to Wagers' arrest, but could not say if he was connected to all of the cases. That guy's name, Justin Wagers, sounds like a douchey FanDuel username that someone would use. <laughs> <laughs> it's FanDuel that like the the betting site. Yeah. Justin yeah. Wagers. <laughs> Since 2005, Wagers has been arrested in Bartholomew, Johnson, Monroe, and Morgan counties. The charges range from public indecency to vicarious sexual gratification and intimidation. Law enforcement had credible tips that led them to be suspicious of wagers regarding Lauren's disappearance, as well as the disappearance of two other people. Investigators searched the property with cadaver dogs, which indicated potential evidence, but when a dig was conducted, nothing was found. This seems like a stretch, too. I would be really interested to hear what the tip was. Yes. Right. That made the FBI jump and who the two other people were yeah right 
Well, I'd be interested in learning a lot more about this investigation that we haven't been told about really from the beginning. Yeah, I, I not much info there. I, I don't know. So there's been no follow up since then, huh? No, they didn't. They didn't find anything in the dig, and that's that was it, kind huh? of where that ended. Mm. And I, th- I my point was, we going back from the beginning. Like we don't know what security footage the cops have have seen or what they've. You know, they haven't released much of anything. So, you know, just a lot of uh, quiet on that front. It had to have been something pretty credible to make the FBI jump like that. Yeah, right. And then the last theory, based on a random abduction, this one's very popular on the internet. And this would be that Israel Keys has something to do with this. This fucking Oh, boy. All of our listeners just blew their load on this one. (sighs) This is the number one most requested topic we get hands down. Mm. Israel Keys. Hands down, the most requested topic we get. Hate that guy. So, that being said, just want to let everyone know, he's on our list. We will cover him. Stop asking me. (laughs) Yeah, I'll I'll save my my thoughts for that episode on this piece of shit. I I know as soon as we do that episode, he's going to join the ranks of uh, Timothy McVeigh on the uh, the Mount Rushmore for me. Yeah. We just had, I would have put him on there back in the day. We're back whenever we did that. We just haven't covered him yet. (laughs) Now you're teasing everybody. They're going to want to fuck it even yeah. more. They want to hear the story. So based on Israel Keys's MO and timeline, there are people who believe that he could be responsible for Lauren's disappearance. Keys planned murders long ahead of time, hiding kill kits in various locations throughout the U.S. Unlike most serial killers, he did not have a victim profile. He usually killed far from home and never in the same area twice. He would travel to retrieve these kill kits and then look for a victim. When I said well, now usually, we don't need to do the episode, <laughs> we just covered him. So there we go. But, and when I say usually never, he usually killed far from home. He always killed far from home until his last kill that got him caught. When the FBI did all this and laid out a real detailed log of his traveling, all of a sudden everybody started looking at unsolved murders and disappearances and stuff from areas that he traveled because this was he he would just randomly pick somebody out. That's that's the, that is the one sca- very scary thing about him was that he would just bury a kill kit somewhere and then decide, all right, well, it's time. I'm going to go kill someone. And he would just fly to the and get the kit and then just look for somebody. It, mm. Man, woman, crazy, elderly, you know, it didn't matter. He's kind of become a catch all for unsolved cases. Well, and plus, he never gave a full accounting to police of, of who he had killed, where the bodies were, right? Yeah, he's a very arrogant, smug yeah. little fucker. And the Nancy Graces of the world have blown him up into like he's this evil supervillain, you know, and they'll, they'll inflate his body count to be like 30 or so. Yeah, he's just a piece of shit, just like BTK and all of them. You know, he's not this uh, this mastermind, this criminal mastermind mm-hmm. or anything. But based on his M.O., I think that, you know, some of these cases that he gets linked to are are worth at least bringing up. It's absolutely possible. Yeah. So how does he fit in here? In the FBI's investigation of Keys, there's a clear timeline that puts him in Indiana at the time of Lauren's disappearance. But actually, it doesn't actually link him to Bloomington. On June 2nd, 2011, he took Alaska Airlines flight Anchorage, Alaska to Chicago, Illinois. Also on June 2nd, he rented a vehicle at Hertz in Des Plaines, Illinois. June 3rd, the day that Lauren went missing, 
there's multiple transactions from Indiana toll roads. Then he goes dark for five days, and on June 8, 2011, he kidnapped and murdered Bill and Lorraine Courier in Essex, Vermont. June 9, 2011, he makes a hotel reservation in Essex, Vermont. June 15, 2011, takes a continental air flight from Chicago, Illinois, to San Francisco, California. So he's there. He might not be in Bloomington, but he's in Indiana. So on June 3rd, like you said, he on June 2nd, he picks up a car in Des Plaines, Illinois. And then on June 3rd, multiple transactions on Indiana toll roads mm. and then nothing until June 8th. And she went missing early in the morning of June 3rd. Right. Was Good that Hertz pick? Was that Hertz rental a white pickup truck? I'm just I, kidding. I'm just trying to be a dick <laughs> back to that earlier thing. Oh, boy. Here's the thing with him, and this is where you start. People started getting into the criminal masterminds because he would kidnap somebody and usually would drive them across state lines to murder them and then drive them across another state line. And people would get into like, well, that makes him he's you know, he's got this so figured out. And I, I would go back against that and say the ADIQ Gary Ridgway figured that shit out a long time ago to take <laughs> bodies across state lines. Yeah. You know, that's just like Nancy Grace and stuff, getting people hyped up. Fuck Nancy Grace. <laughs> but he does. I mean, th- if let's say he did do this, he would. That would be that would hit, fit his M.O. with that. He would take her across out of Indiana. Mm. So Bloomington's about 200 miles south of the turnpike, I think, like southwest of Indianapolis. So he had plenty of time. I mean, whether or not he drove 200 miles out of his way, I, I think is possible. He had all the time in the world to do that. And it sounds like, and obviously I know nothing about this man, because why would I? Uh, Of course I don't. Um, It sounds like that would be part of his mastermind, right? Would be to go way off track and just not make it, not not have any any reason to believe it was him, right? Does that not make sense for his M.O. or or am I missing the boat? Maybe he had a kit in Bloomington. I mean, who knows, right? Like you were saying, Dave, he was really vague with, with investigators when he was caught. He was purposely vague. They have found two kill kits that I know of. So he he did do that. That's that's real. And when we do his episode and dig in there, yeah, there are times where he would drive like 500 miles to do the, you know, part of his M.O., like what got him off with killing and stuff was the planning in it. Yeah. The, the patience involved in it. Like, you know, BTK sit, like being willing to sit in a in a closet for hours silent waiting. Yeah. It's kind of what Israel Keys did, just planning and driving and, you know, traveling like that. Yeah. There's a lot of patience and planning involved. I mean, what would be helpful there was some timestamps on those transactions on the on the turnpike. And I was going to ask that. Did, did they not have those? And don't all of those like turnpikes have like video surveillance? Like you got to be able to see that, right? Good thing, and, and and I think we're get we're, we might be diving too much into Israel Keys here, but and we'll get into that probably <laughs> in this episode. But like, yeah, if you're going through a turnpike or a toll road, that's all like video surveillance. Because what if you blow through the toll road? Like, they're gonna get you. Oh yeah. So yeah, you're right, Dave. There should be timestamps. You should be able to figure out exactly when he went through, you know, and all that. Yeah, I mean, if he stuff. if he cleared one, you know, exited at you know two o'clock in the morning and didn't come back through till two o'clock the next right. day, then yeah, he had time to drive 200 miles. Right. I have more questions about those uh, toll road transactions. Stay tuned. We could be real dicks and make Israel keys a Patreon episode down the road. <laughs> <laughs> 
We won't, I promise. But I'm only one third of a vote, so I, I find this uh, theory highly suspicious that puts him two, within 200 miles of her. So I think it's credible. I think of all the theories we just discussed, this is the most likely of those those last few theories we discussed. I still want to go back to those the, her friends, though. Yeah, I mean, I, I I would say you know statistically, Israel Keys probably didn't do anything to her, but then also at the same time, statistically, you know, what are the chances that Israel Keys is in Indiana at the time that yeah, she went missing. Right. It's I, wild. That's, would, a, that's a wild connection. Yeah. I would say it's probably either that or something more sinister with her friends or one of those guys is the likely thing here. So what are we thinking? Ian, do you want to go first? You want to go last? What are you thinking with these? Or if you want to pass and hear Dave and I first. The only thing that I had on my mind that I didn't say throughout this episode is I think that there's there's something to be said about rumor in things like this. I know probably 99% of our audiences listen to the Up and Vanished podcast. In season one, they did the cold case of, of Tara Grinstead. And throughout that, there were a lot of rumors about what happened to her. You know, it was a small town and, and people talked, but the police never had anything you know, concrete to really go on. And sure enough, some of those rumors, you know, ended up being pretty accurate. So I think there is something to be said about that. I think there's something, you know, when you you hear that Hammersley guy say the thing about her OD, you know, they were taking ecstasy and she OD'd. And then when you go online and you just see it over and over again, people say like, I'm from, I went to IU. That's what happened. Everybody knows that's what happened. I, don't know. I just think there's something to be said about rumor like that in these cases. Meaning that you think it was all just possibly just an accidental drug overdose and they got scared and covered everything up. I don't know. But if that if that was what really happened, I I can't see. Like I said before, I can't see if you see her over, overdosing in front of you. I can't see not calling 911 and and then just covering it up there you that well I would make so many more problems for yourself and that would be extremely inhuman to do to not call 911 mm-hmm. yeah if if that theory is correct the only way that that would make any sense to me is that she never really did walk home at 4:30 a.m. that she stayed there and they woke up in the morning and you know she was dead and died in her sleep and then well, and a cover up that- happened and going on that statement, like based on what you said, Ian, based on what they said themselves, she was either either ODing or having alcohol poisoning right in front of them. And they still did nothing. You know, th- this girl was clearly in some kind of issue and trauma and they did nothing to help her. So based on their own account, she was going through some kind of issues and they did nothing. So, yeah, I don't. I guess I'll give my take here. I think I, I don't trust that Cody guy. Uh, what is, is it? Cody? Is that right? Corey. 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 I'm sorry. I don't trust that Corey guy 100%. I think his story is a lot of bullshit. Um, I think the fact that when he was giving his statement, it seemed like all he cared about was, quote, his career that was on the line. Meanwhile, his friend had is missing or dead, and all he cared to talk about was himself and his career. I think the it's very troubling how they went to the bar and she was able to get in allegedly coherently and then left 30 minutes later incoherently. Um, 
that would lend me to believe maybe he had something to do with that. Maybe he roofied her. Um, the whole thing about the fight with four other guys is only from his word. Sounds like bullshit to me. Um, and like getting her to come back to his place. Uh, and I think, is it when they left? Is it when they left her apartment to go to his apartment is when they went through the alley? No, that was getting to the apartment. Or was that, what, was that leaving the bar? That was leaving her apartment to go to, go to, to his apartment. To go to his apartment. Okay. So, again, maybe more more of a reason to believe that he's being physically aggressive with her, that they walk into the alley and she loses personal belongings and then, quote, she tripped and fell a lot and had bruises and scrapings. And so that being said, I feel like he probably knows a lot more to the story than he's letting on. And then, you know, I, I, I think I'm leaning more towards she might have passed away from or, or OD'd on something. Maybe a concoction that he gave her, maybe a concoction that she took, and then he got his friends to help him kind of cover that up. I know I just did a lot of talking and a lot of rambling. I hope that made sense. All right, Dave, what are your final thoughts? Boy, I don't know. I, I tend to agree with you guys. I, I, I'm i starting to question that story about leaving at 4.30 in the morning and questioning whether she actually ever left that apartment. I don't think she did, I think is what I'm leaning towards. And whether it was one or more people involved, I, you know, who knows, but I'm leaning yeah, towards that. It's just weird that one, someone would let her leave like that. Two, that there's really no evidence that she left. Mm -hmm. Three, that she even would have been able to have left based on the condition it sounded like she was in. Um, it's also just really unfortunate that that was like her old high school friend that was in that position and that, you know, made whatever decision he might have made that night. Yeah. Talking about Jay. Rosin bomb. Do you guys put any more weight like I do into the, the, the Corey thing? Or is that just me being a dick, you know, against him? I just feel like for the condition that he showed back up in at home, according to his roommate, who said he was wasted out of his mind and he put him right to bed. How is he remembering all of the story that he's telling the cops allegedly about her falling down or about how she got home or about a fight with four other guys in her dorm? It just doesn't add up to me. His, I know his lawyer has made a statement saying that, you know, he was intoxicated, but when he was punched, it um, likely gave him a concussion. Hmm. That seems like a very lawyer statement to make. <laughs> That's what they're paid for, right? I guess yeah. it depends on how believable that Michael Beth is and because he's the middle guy in these chain of events. Right. And he was the one, like I asked earlier, that was allegedly sober all night and that cops immediately cleared, you know, upon questioning. Right. Yep. Yeah. I don't know. That's just odd. Somebody knows something out there. I yeah, clearly. And it's very unfortunate that this girl, you know, her family's not going to get any justice or find out what happened and, you know, have to live with this forever. Hopefully not. But as of this moment, they have. It's been what? Fucking nine years. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, if I if I had to like if she left that apartment at at 430, then someone did something. I, it, the thing is, with this case, someone did something to her, because if she would have OD'd on the way home, someone her body would have been found. Yeah, sure. Sure. Something someone in this chain of events did something nefarious to her, and whether it so be hide her body or. On her walk home, someone randomly abducted her, but something it, it, bad happened. You know, something, someone did something to her. 
And if you believe her friends and the guys who saw her that night, then when she left the apartment complex at 430, it was random and it's probably never going to get solved because it was just going to be just, you know, something happened that is just unfortunate and random and might have been one of the theories we talked about might not have been but random murders are hard to solve man right like what are you gonna do yeah that's what makes a guy like israel keys you know like i said earlier i don't i think he gets hyped up a bit but you know that's what makes a guy like him very scary is because it's completely random you know and it's it's extremely hard to solve when we talk about him. We'll, we'll see. He kind of he's kind of leads to his own demise as far as getting caught. But, you know, for the time, you know, it is it's almost impossible to catch somebody like that and solve something. Yeah, you know, I something agree. that's completely random. God damn. I feel like this whole episode's now been a preview for Israel Keys. Stand by, <laughs> folks. God damn. All right. Well, this was a real feel good story tonight, wasn't it, guys? No, a different for us. Yeah, I don't. I don't love it. Yeah, everyone's all bummed out now. All right, God, I wish I had a fun topic to bring up. I didn't even think of that. I'll, uh, can I ask you guys some fun question or a fun question before we sign off here? Sure. All right. Well, fuck. Now I gotta think of something. <laughs> I wanted to end on a positive note at least. Would you rather have it be twenty-five degrees all year round or ninety-five degrees? All year round at 25 degrees, the wind chill is at negative 10 and at 95 degrees, the humidity is at 80 percent. Negative 10 for sure. Uh, They're both awful, (laughs) but I got to go 95, I guess. You can't even go outside negative 10. It's pretty fucking cold. I go outside for a few minutes when it's 95 as atrocious as it is. Yeah, I would not. I'm with Ian. I would also take the cold and I would just stay inside. (laughs) That's too much. I can't do the humidity at all. All right. That was an unplanned question. I had no idea. I'm just trying to end this on a little bit of a better note. Anyways, I'll take the cold over the heat. Dave will take a little bit of the heat over the cold as long as it's bearable. But none of us are going to Florida. So anyways, what kind of shout outs we got here? We have a whole bunch of new listeners. Man, it gets better every week. Thank you to new patrons. Samantha Bowers. Laura Farrar. Maybe that's Laura Ferrer, Karen Peer- Person, Sarah Abraham, Samuel, Panther, 109777, Misty Bess, Raven Holmes, Kate Pennington, Chardonnay Marie, Lily Borrell, Ashley Roberts, Anthony Rodriguez, Jesper Nilsson, Prehistoric Dog, Evan Ferris, Sarah Marie, Holly Williams, Gabby Sumption, David Freeman, Juke, Sarah Snyder. Oh, that's our old pal. Shout out to Sarah. Glad to have you back. Gary Dean Jr. Trix Green. Christopher Cobble. Michael Ratcliffe. Val C. Kara Allen. Derek Tam. Hannah Bowman. Jack Hicks. Margaret Ridley. Michael Gleason. And Autumn Tucker. Thank you guys very much. We appreciate you uh, signing up. We are at patreon.com slash Necronomapod. Ian, what do you got? Tucker, she's only been a patron for a few days. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Autumn. Sorry. Thank you for signing up. For iTunes, I have one for Thick Brownie, Blue Persuasion, Criddle25, L. Lampkin, A.V. Cat Drew, Distant Sky, 
Shigalum, Lind23, Rarange, and KT Wizzle. Thank you guys for the awesome reviews. All right, Dave, you got anything you want to get off your chest? Anything else? No, sir. All right. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, at Necronomapod, patreon.com slash Necronomapod. We love hearing from you guys. We appreciate you guys signing up. Thank you very much, and we'll check you later. All right. You guys ready for a cool down beer? Cheers.